is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Last week, I told the first part of the story of Josh Wade, the disappearance of Mindy Schloss, and the murder of Della Brown, whose beaten body had been found in a shed. After Josh's friends wore a wire, Josh Wade had an arrest warrant out and police were starting their hunt for him. This all took place seven years before Mindy's disappearance, a nurse who divided her time between Fairbanks and Anchorage, who went missing from her home. When authorities, who all knew the infamous case of Della Brown, learned that Joshua Wade lived next door to Mindy, their instincts told them she had probably met a terrible fate. In 2000, after securing a warrant to arrest Josh after a wired conversation with his friends had him admitting to killing and posthumously raping Della, police arrived to arrest Josh. Unfortunately, his drug-induced paranoia kept him a step ahead and he had taken off on his bike. A search of the area ensued, ending at 3 a.m. At 5 p.m., police learned of Josh's location at a friend's house, so neighboring police departments sent support, including officers and 30 cruisers, which surrounded the house. But once again, they were too late. Josh had escaped on foot. Crossing a river, he got to the other side and called a friend for a ride. After riding around for about 20 minutes, he finally gave up and surrendered. Under arrest, his bail was set at $1 million. Executing the search warrant at the house he shared with his dad, which is where Josh went after bailing out, investigators didn't find much in the way of clues. That is except for a small pocket knife that was located in Josh's bedroom. At first, the knife wasn't listed on the search warrant, so they didn't take it. Looking closely at it and feeling there was possible blood on the blade, police were desperate to collect it as evidence. Instead of taking the time to get another search warrant, risking the knife being hidden or tossed, they called Bubba, Josh's father. Hoping to swindle him into giving them the knife, they implied they could bring Josh in and hold him until they got a whole new warrant, which, who knows, could be for days. Or he could just agree to letting them take it and not deal with all that pesky paperwork. Uh-oh, Bubba that agreed. sound like a good idea. Not so much. Bubba agreed, and they took the knife. In early 2003, two and a half years after Della's ravaged body was discovered, the trial of Joshua Wade began. Without a single native Alaskan on the jury, both sides made their cases. For the prosecution, it was all about the witnesses. They had all the guys from the garage who not only were taken to see Della's body in the shed, but had either been privy to one of Josh's many confessions or had seen him with blood on his clothes. The defense's argument was that there was plenty of evidence not only proving the killer wasn't Josh, but a lack of evidence otherwise. Prosecution brought in the owner of the garage, who had seen Josh the night of the murder. He claimed Josh had been covered in blood and was acting weird. He couldn't say if it was a nervous weird or a drug-induced weird, but his odd behavior was noticeable to anyone who knew him. I find that to be really horrible that it's not representative you know 
Oh, as far as the jury having Native Alaskans, it feels yes. like you, it feels like they should go out of their way to try to make that happen. Yes, it reminded me a lot of um, Josh and I both just finished reading Killers of the Flower Moon, which is going to be a movie soon. And part of their issue now, this was in 1926 in Oklahoma, but a huge issue prosecution was facing was could you get 12 white men to convict a white man for killing a Native American? It might have been more to like the void year process, questioning the jurors that, you know. Yeah. Was it purposeful? Exactly. Were half the people there, you know, that were called in, were they all Native American? And then they were all dismissed because they were able to find some reason. If you ask, were you a victim of a violent crime? Right. A lot more of the Native Americans are going to say yes than the white people. Yeah. So that's that's uncomfortable for sure. Friend Dwayne said Josh had claimed to have kicked Della, and when doing so, it made her flatulate. Finding that amusing, he continued to kick her. Josh's disdain for Native women was well known, so when he told Dwayne he had found a Native woman lying in the street, his previously shared sentiment of, quote, Native women are worthless and killing them was doing the world a favor seemed all the more alarming. Even with multiple eyewitnesses, this was not going to be a slam dunk win for the prosecution. The prosecutor was worried the knife wouldn't be permitted due to how it was procured, so she didn't even bother sending it in for testing or presenting it as evidence. As for the witnesses, well, they had issues of their own. Wouldn't you try and then just have the judge say you can't? You know, like, wouldn't you try? Almost like you might find out she maybe wasn't the best lawyer for the job. Oh, yeah, that usually happens around here. It was difficult enough their witness list was full of young men who almost all had criminal records and were known gang affiliates. But when the testimony they gave on the stand was different from what they had originally told investigators and later the grand jury, their credibility was nearly non-existent. For example, Dwayne claimed in one instance he was in the car with Josh the night of the murder. Stopping by the shed, Josh got out of the car and Dwayne heard ten loud thuds implying he thought it was the time he was hitting Della with the rock. But this story hadn't been told until he was in court. Scared. Yeah. There's like now there's I'm a in court and I can be protected. Right. God, that makes me angry. Just because someone is a criminal doesn't mean they're a liar. Yeah, but that's hard to convince people otherwise. Mm-hmm. Another witness, Jesse, gave a testimony that supported some of the physical evidence. He said Josh was known as an attention whore who told the guys he had tried to slit a woman's throat after beating her, but his small knife, presumed to be the same as the one found in Josh's room, was too dull, leaving only markings. That would explain the odd injuries on Della's neck and legs. Josh had wanted to do more damage to Della's body. Thankfully, he hadn't been able to. By the time star witnesses Danny and Romeo, who had been wired in the car when Josh confessed, were ready to testify, They had gotten into trouble of their own between Josh's arrest and trial. Facing time for a string of hotel robberies, they were forced to testify in their orange jailhouse jumpsuits. That did not help to bring credibility to the state's case. Not only were the visuals harmful, but the jury was told they had struck deals with the prosecution in exchange for leniency. Romeo's story had undergone the same twisting of Dwayne's, changing over time. 
He claimed he had told the police about having seen the large black man as to not direct police to Josh. It wasn't that he was trying to protect him or make a false report. He just wanted to give him some time. His attempt at helping that night wasn't good enough in Josh's eyes to make up for him having worn a wire. Once they were all in prison, Josh was threatening Romeo. The threats could have been what led to the change of testimony. It could also be attributed to the fact that for the previous year and a half, Romeo had been in the hole, solitary confinement. On a British television experiment in 2017, it was found that within 72 hours of solitary confinement, participants were having visual hallucinations and throwing up. Other effects from being in solitary are auditory hallucinations, hypersensitivity, especially to sounds and textures, insomnia, paranoia, rage, fear, loss of sense of time, and an extremely heightened risk of suicide. You know how much I love to bring up Khalif Browder and the documentary about his life on Netflix. He ended up, quite literally, losing his mind after 700 days in the hole. So it's hard to not feel frustrated at the prosecution for expecting a perfect performance from someone they were literally and technically psychologically torturing. After the witnesses, the jury heard over and over again that Josh had referenced Della, saying, quote, The bitch is tough and she doesn't want to die. Answering investigators' questions as to why the crime scene seemed even more difficult to process than it should have been, even if it was an old rundown shack. Josh had told at least seven people about the murder, bringing at least four of them to the shack to show them Della's body. As mediocre as the state's case was, it was about to get a lot worse. The lead prosecutor, Marianne Henry, had to step down. She was going through some personal issues, and the stress of the case was all too much. Fun fact, though, Marianne Henry, in the 70s, was the first female prosecutor for a homicide case in Alaska. Seeking volunteers in the prosecutor's office, two young attorneys, Marcy McDaniel and Carrie Brady, stepped up, each taking on their first homicide case. Once they got the file, they were horrified to find they were starting from scratch. One main reason there hadn't been an attempt to get the knife tested, Mary never sent it in. As for all of the other evidence, it wasn't sent for testing until after the start of the trial. Footprints, blood, hair, none of it. Not only was this shocking as it was part of the job, but Marianne had taken a year prior to the trial for discovery and prep. Do you think she just wasn't fit to be in the trial? When the new lawyers had the case, they called Marianne on the phone. Speaking to her, it would sound like she was stressed, overwhelmed. The pressure of a murder case was getting to her. There were soon clues that had her co-workers speculating she was struggling more with a drinking problem than a stress management one. That'll do it. Oh, boy. You know, and that's alleged that, as far as I know, she didn't come out to say, and she's since passed away. Right. She uh, didn't come out to say, I was struggling with that from what I know, but... Uh, that was their impression. It was pretty clear right away to these young gals that they were. Well, it's a horrific case. Not to say she wasn't drinking before it. I could see right, how that right, would right. drive you to it. Right. So the speculation was basically, yeah, that year of prep, just kind of something happened. Maybe And cumulative. We talk about how our research affects us. And we're just doing research on the side. This is someone who it's their job. Their job, yeah. And if I screw up, this killer could walk free and... What if they harm someone else and that's on me? So it's a lot of pressure, but it's also like if you can't handle it, 
then you should step away. And yeah, not bring do someone on who, who's fresh and wants to. And not do it in the middle of a trial. <laughs> do it at the start of it and say, I don't think I can handle this. It didn't take long for Marcy and Carrie to realize why they, the greenest in the office, had ended up with such a big trial. It was obvious to the experienced lawyers that this case was dead in the water. The others didn't want the loss on their record, so they left the fate of an accused killer, the safety of the community, and the justice for Della in the hands of newbies. It's not that the pair didn't know the law, but they didn't know how to handle it in the most professional manner. Using humor to cope with their own stress, the two women were noticeably chatty and giggly. Their inappropriate laughter eliciting an outburst of, what the fuck do you think is so funny, from Josh. Multiple jurors and reporters remarked on the laughter as well, leaving those witnessing the circus feeling like they cared more about the case than the prosecution. Still wanting to put the bad guy away, the ladies attempted to bring the knife in as evidence. That's when they learned Marianne had struck a deal with the court that it would never be submitted. Ugh. They were quickly running out of options and hope. Why would you make that kind of deal? I think she agreed to it because she was scared of ramifications of how the police acquired it. Yeah. On the other side, Josh had created quite the defense team that only had to provide reasonable doubt. Challenge accepted. As for the charge of rape, the DNA from the semen recovered from Della was tested and none matched Josh. The bloody fingerprint found in the shed? Not Josh. Not Della. Same for the pubic hair. Police were unable to find anything substantial in his home. Nothing in his car. No forensic evidence to speak of pointed to Josh being the murderer. When police went to the area Romeo claimed the shovel had been dumped, they did find it but it didn't appear to have any damage, markings, or physical evidence showing it had been used in the murder. Later, the prosecution said that perhaps the shovel hadn't been used for the murder itself, but as an aid in removing the large rock that had been used. So what about the recorded confession? Again, due to Marianne's incompetency, only the part of the conversation where Josh recognized Della on the front of the paper was allowed to be played in front of the jury, not his confession to killing her. I feel a rage <laughs> for that fan for her family. Yeah. I I'm at a total loss. And how is there no evidence? Right. Well, and it it is really like a double victimization. I've I've lost my person that I care about to this alleged killer. And now the people that are supposed to be continuing to protect her and her family aren't doing their job either. Nope. And they're laughing in court. Yeah. To where the defendant asks them what's so funny. Screams at them. <laughs> if I'm on a jury and I don't know a lot about legal proceedings and you're laughing it off, it's like, oh, oh I'm going to judge that. Yeah. Her life must not have mattered that much. This isn't that serious of a deal. They aren't sure that it's him. Something. You would totally, you would take it as seriously as they are. The defense didn't have to do much more than that, but they did. They dismissed Josh's supposed confession as false bragging, just a young dude showing off for his tough gangster friends. Let's not forget that there were plenty of other potential suspects. Romeo, a man that had already been seen in his jumpsuit, was in the area the time Della was killed. His girlfriend was his only alibi, and they had both approached the police, lying that they had seen someone else with Della. Gregory Poindexter hadn't been totally ruled out, and let's not forget about the garage full of young men, some with violent tendencies. And in case anyone forgot, Gregory Poindexter was the uh, supposed rapist in the area at the time. 
The defense had to agree that the state's witnesses, who were shaky at best, still seemed to have all of the stories that did match up in the same sequence and timeline. But when the two-and-a-half-month trial came to an end, the defense went after Della. The defense pointed out that Della had only been given $10 from her neighbor, although there were reports that she took $100 out of Rudy's account. At the time of her death, she had more than $10 of liquor and cocaine in her system. Combining that with the fact that a third-party semen was found in her body, along with a pubic hair, it was easy to say she was providing sex work services in the shed in exchange for the inebriants. That theory would also mean there was a third party present at the scene who could have easily killed Della, leaving her behind for Josh to find when he went to check on her. That's valid. It sucks to say those things about someone who's deceased, but they are things that she does have a history of. And if you're protecting your client, that's that's an easy thing to point out to say somebody else was there. And to be fair to the defendant. Yeah, that is someone else was there. You can't deny that part. No matter how big of a douchebag you are. Right. An interesting part of the book, Ice and Bone, was surrounding the jury of this case. When the jury was excused, there were two people who, after nearly three months of testimony, including graphic photos and stories, were excused altogether. They had not been informed from the start that they were alternates and that they wouldn't be needed for deliberations. This left one of the alternates totally shaken. She not only couldn't provide her thoughts and views to the deliberation after focusing and taking notes, she didn't get to have any kind of closure. Stepping outside, she was still in shock when she encountered the other dismissed alternate. Surprised, she learned they had different opinions as to what they thought the outcome should be. That would be devastating. Yeah. If you are so hyper focused to be like, I got to take all of this in and the weight of this case and process it in a fair judicial way and be like, bye. Thanks for your time. We have a friend who was on a jury who one of the jury members asked, is there counseling offered? Because it was a very graphic trial. Yeah. And they dismissed him. Emily, Josh, I'm curious what you think the verdict will be for the case with Della Brown. Oh, I think he's getting away with it. He's white. Not guilty. There you go. On April 16th, 2003, the jury returned with their verdict. Josh Wade was found guilty. What? Of tampering with evidence. Oh. The evidence was Della's body. The tampering was his own admission to moving it. Oh. As for the other charges, including murder, not guilty. The jury just couldn't get past the amount of doubt while feeling the state had not presented a strong enough case. As Josh had been found with a gun in his possession, he was sentenced to 18 months for the gun, which would run concurrently with his five-year sentence, of which he had already served two years. Daisy, Della's mom, spoke at the sentencing hearing. She told Josh and the court how, since the death of her daughter, everything in her life had changed. She uprooted her children to relocate from New Mexico back to Alaska so she could attend every hearing. In doing so, she had left her other children and the rest of her family behind. The emotional toll had her relying on pills for relief and numbness. Eventually, she ended up residing in a mental health facility for some time. But her words, while they didn't fall on deaf ears, were presented to an irreversible circumstance. Josh thanked the judge before defending his good name, saying how upset he was that the media was making him look like a racist, just because everyone who knew him had said he was. They don't know me at all. Right. Well, and that's the good thing to focus on when someone has said you've killed someone. 
to be like more offended that you're exactly exactly he was sorry to daisy and della's family but the only thing he did wrong was not call the police when he found her body as for everyone else they could just go to hell because the accusation of racism had him targeted in jail causing fights and unfair treatment they had ruined his life just to get a conviction i'm guessing nobody really feels bad about that sorry i certainly don't After the verdict, local indigenous activist Dessa Jacobson went on a fast. She was willing to try anything to get much-needed attention on the crisis of the missing and murdered indigenous women in Alaska. She didn't need studies or statistics to tell her Alaska was a dangerous place for Native women. She had created a local crime watch group, the Rat Patrol. She and four other women would walk through the nightlife areas of Anchorage, keeping their eyes out for possible trouble. Much like Gregory Poindexter had done, Dessa witnessed seeing a line of men waiting outside a local bar, one with beers in hand, as though they were going to pounce on the next vulnerable woman that walked out the door, most likely an intoxicated indigenous woman. As part of Dessa's plight to gain media attention, she did the 28-day fast, consuming only water and coffee, as her way of protesting not only the verdict in Della's case, but the sentence. After going nearly a month without food, Dessa ended her fast with a 10-mile walk. Besides her frustration at the case and police work, Dessa was hoping the attention her fast had brought would also bring federal civil rights charges against Josh, as it had been testified to by so many that he had hatred for Native women. While speaking to Monty Francis, the author of the book, they walked through her neighborhood. Angry at the constant injustice herself and fellow Indigenous persons were facing, she pointed at the houseless folks in the area before saying, These are the landowners. She really loved it, too, when the police chief at the time said that Native women shouldn't be outside and shouldn't be drunk. When it was pointed out just how victim-blaming that sounded, Chief Monaghan was like, Oh, no, no, I was just trying to warn them. To no one's surprise, Joshua Wade, convicted in spring of 03, was released at the end of 2004, serving about four years total. Even though this was no shock to the district attorney, police, or his parole officer, they all agreed. Josh was a ticking time bomb, and it was only a matter of time before the man that they felt who had gotten away with murder would be striking again. The infamy of Josh's case was what had Detective Pam pronounced so shaken when she learned Josh was a neighbor of Mindy's. Could it be that the fears of those concerned officials had come to fruition? By the 17th of August, the quiet cul-de-sac where Mindy and Josh lived was swarming with surveilling police. Learning that the home next to Mindy had the second Josh, and that it was actually Josh Wade, a photo of Josh was taken immediately to Kathy, the neighbor. And yes, that was the Josh who had come by her home, intimidated her, and returned that night to stare at her door. At the same time, a scent team had arrived to process Mindy's car. Taking scents from the car, including the driver's seat and steering wheel, the sniffing dogs were taken to the first ATM that had been used for a withdrawal from Mindy's card. After being presented with smell samples from the car, the dog took off. It was only a few blocks, but they soon arrived at Mindy's front door. But the trail didn't end there. The dogs continued to her garage, then away from her home and to the side door of Josh's house. (gasps) Ooh... That was enough to allow a warranted search of the house. It was 5 a.m. Josh wasn't home, but his roommates were, and they were now stuck outside while the police went through their belongings. It was noticed that the house itself 
looked like it was occupied by several teenagers. To say it was messy would be an understatement. That was, except for Josh's room. His room was the antithesis of the rest of the house. It was pristine. There wasn't much out of the norm. He was reading a Harry Potter book. His hobby of drawing hadn't subsided. Sketches of women in provocative positions were in his sketchbook. Then they looked out his bedroom window and realized it looked directly into Mindy's house. On a chair, the unique jacket from the ATM videos. In the pocket, an ATM receipt. As an officer checked in a closet, something fell. It was a gold watch. It would later be ID'd by Mindy's friends and via photos that it belonged to her. Interestingly, when talking to the roommates, they informed detectives that the entire house used the side door as the main entrance and exit, the same door the first trail dog had hit on. Bringing dogs in again, this time it was for a cadaver search. Going into the closet, the watch had been located, the dog hit on a hat, a plaid shirt, and a black jacket. Going to the ATM that was used for the second withdrawal, where the card was taken by the machine, a human scent search dog, Lucy, was waiting to get another sample. It had been two weeks by now, but the trainers were hopeful that a scent would remain. Using the sample they had taken from the shoes in Josh's closet, Lucy soon took trail. This time, they weren't just a few blocks from Mindy's house, they were five miles away. When Lucy started taking back roads and side streets, detectives were hesitant to believe that this wasn't a bad trail or that perhaps the trainer was leading the dog. But they soon realized that the out-of-town trainers would not have known the strange route, so the dog must have been onto something. Unsure of where Lucy would be going, police had to frantically block off streets as they went. Lucy was the captain now. Five minutes later, Lucy arrived at Josh's side door and stopped. Trying to understand how the dog could end up at the suspect's home after taking such a weird path, detectives remembered that night, Josh had been on his bike. In that case, those were the exact roads he would have used as a shortcut. Josh wasn't naive to the fact that the new neighbors walking their dog in front of his house and the generic workers on the street were actually cops surveilling his house. And just as before, his paranoia was in full effect. As detectives and their dogs closed in, Josh reached out to an old friend. Josh and Christina had met a few years prior, not long after he had been released from prison. She was just 17. The book claims he was 20 at the time, but that would have made it the year 2000, which doesn't actually add up for him claiming to be in a halfway house before being in possession of a firearm. And the author also stated that the pair had known each other for three years, which would have made Josh 23. So I'm not exact on the dates, but around that time. After Josh was released, he contacted Christina. They started their relationship as a romantic one, but they soon broke up. Remaining friends, she had always been there for him, even when he was in legal trouble. She trusted him and never felt she was in danger of being harmed by him. Their sporadic visits became more frequent after Mindy disappeared. He asked Christina for daily rides. Without hesitation, she happily helped her friend. Although she trusted him with her life, she did notice his behavior had become more erratic. Realizing her taillight was broken, Josh freaked out at her to go get it fixed. If he needed to use the restroom while they were on the road, he would ask her to pull over so that he could go into a wooded area. Public restrooms were too, well, public. If, when she was dropping him off at his house, there appeared to be cops around, he would just ask to ride with her, sometimes even sleeping in the back of her SUV before riding around with her the next day as she ran some errands. That would be a little bit of a red flag for me. 
I'd be like, buddy, you you're hiding out. Something you want to tell me? Yeah. Like, are you worried about the police? <laughs> a little bit too much, maybe, for good reason. When she was concerned enough by his behavior to bring it up, he said the fear came from the fact that his neighbor was missing and his criminal past would make him an automatic suspect. The 17th was a busy day. Besides all of the progress in the investigation, Josh had been taken to his house by Christina. He asked her to run inside and grab his backpack, but she refused, so he snuck in and grabbed his bag. Christina was unaware that one of the things he was picking up was his Glock. Driving around, Josh had her pull over, and he dumped the gun in some bushes. Trying to go home the next day, Josh found the street was closed. The scent dogs were back, and they were tracing him. During this time, police had been in contact with Christina, but getting her to work with them was going to be an uphill battle. Not only did she see Josh as a friend, she was in complete denial of how dangerous he was. She told detectives about the rides, talked about their relationship, but she didn't want to do more to help them. Her stance didn't seem defiant, but more that she was maybe child-minded when it came to what her friend could be capable of. That's not to say she didn't have her moments of concern. She didn't want anything to do with the gun. She could tell he wasn't in a good mental state, but that didn't mean he was a killer. Having a mother, Tina, that was open to friends coming around, Christina had kept her informed of everything going on with Josh. Watching the local news one evening after giving him a lift, the women were floored when a frame from the ATM surveillance video was shown, hoping someone with information would recognize the wanted suspect which is exactly what Christina did. She nearly yelled at the TV. That was Josh. She was starting to realize that the police were trying to get her to see the light and understand how dangerous not only Josh was, but that it was for her to continue to associate with him. Their fear was that she would talk to investigators, maybe accidentally say too much, and he would find out. And they all knew how he reacted when he felt his bad deeds were on the verge of being found out. Worried they could be implicated in whatever it was Josh had done, Christina and her mother ran to Christina's car where they found Josh had left his backpack in the trunk. Taking it inside, they checked the contents, finding a mostly empty bottle of vodka, headphones, a cassette player, bandana, toothbrush, a cell phone, and a Ziploc baggie with receipts. Christina didn't understand the importance of any of the items. She was just relieved the bag also didn't include a gun. Looking through the photos on the phone, there were a couple that included a Glock. The picture only showed a hand holding it, as the person holding the phone was also the one holding the gun, so they couldn't say definitively that it was Josh, but Christina knew. Christina's emotions were all over the place. She wasn't ready to turn in her friend, so she needed to sleep on it. The next day, she did the right thing and turned the backpack into investigators. She was still hesitant to provide too much help, but she did agree to let her phone be tapped to record the conversations between her and Josh. Knowing it would be dangerous for her if Josh found out about the backpack, officers took Christina to a safe house at a hotel room. While there, she got a call, but when the officers started to record it, she informed them it was just her sister. Later, when it was asked if that call had been Josh, Christina confessed. It had been, but she was too scared to allow them to record it, so she lied. Feeling stressed from the pressure between the police demands and her friendship with Josh, she left the safety of the hotel. Tina and Christina were in a tough spot, so they sought legal counsel from the closest person they had to a lawyer, their tax attorney. <laughs> it makes sense. I would do that. I'm sorry. I'd be like, you have attorney in your name. What do I, who do I call? What do I do? 
maybe that paints a picture of um, uh, problem solving skills. I mean, what do you do? I would post in my Facebook group. Anybody know a good lawyer? (laughs) Yeah, because you don't want to call the police yet, but you are in a legal situation. Sure. They're just reaching out to someone they think might have more information. Yeah, it makes sense. I would do if I had a specific tax attorney or a friend that was, I'd be like, you got to help me. You took the bar, right? Or they at least might know someone. Exactly. They explained the situation, and he obviously wasn't a criminal expert, but he was worried for his friends, especially when Josh called Christina again. This time he was angry, and he wanted his backpack from her car. Seeing how upset he was just trying to get the bag, they knew it would only get worse when he not only couldn't get it, but learned it was turned into authorities. Fearful, the attorney called 911 and detectives arrived, hoping they would finally get the cooperation from Christina they were needing. During that time, investigators had begun processing the backpack and its contents. A recent phone number dialed in Josh's phone had the last four digits that were the same that had been found in the wallet at Mindy's home. It was found that those numbers were Mindy's debit card pin. Besides Christina, police also hoped to get information from another young woman Josh had dated, Lisa. Back in April of 2005, Josh was dating a teenage girl who was the daughter of Lisa. Soon, Josh and the daughter broke up so he could start dating her mother. The 17-year age difference didn't matter to the couple at first, but the love didn't last. Lisa eventually filed a restraining order after claiming Josh had held her against a wall before throwing a punch. Luckily, it was the wall that took the hit, not Lisa. In addition to that incident, Josh punched a door, broke a phone, stole things, and threatened to burn the house down. Contrary to his complaints of false racism claims from Della's case, he also called Lisa a native cunt bitch whore. Yikes. As had been a theme in his life, Josh's temper had cost him yet another relationship. Breaking up in early June of 2007, Lisa hadn't given Josh much thought until Mindy disappeared. Around the same time the search for Mindy began, Lisa dissolved her restraining order. She also called the police. She, too, had seen the ATM footage on the news, and she was able to identify the man as her ex, Joshua Wade. Police then paid her a visit at the restaurant where she worked. It was official. Josh Wade was the prime suspect, and he was also missing. Investigators hadn't been able to question him, and it was clear he knew they were on to him. By the end of August, when Mindy had been missing for about three weeks, police decided they needed more help from the public so they were going to have to show some of their cards. On August 30th, Mindy's story was front-page news, but the headline wasn't just about her. Authorities were declaring war on Josh, saying, ex-con linked to missing nurse, accompanied with a photo of Josh. Along with the media coverage, a local printer had donated thousands of missing persons flyers. The police, Crime Stoppers, and Mindy's family had combined finances to create an $8,500 reward for information. Billboards displaying Joshua Wade's wanted info started to pop up. Extra officers were brought in to search for Josh and to interview his friends. Part of the detectives' tactics were similar to what had been used to try to catch Josh back in 2000. They continued to interview and question his friends, hoping the heat would scare them and they would ask Josh to turn himself in. Not needing pressure to do so, Bubba went on the news asking his son to do the right thing and turn himself into police. Daisy, Della's mother, also went on the news. 
She knew firsthand just how dangerous Josh was and what injustices had already occurred surrounding him leading up to this manhunt. A manhunt that certainly didn't compare to the piddly search officers attempted when looking for Josh back when he had admitted to killing Della. Even after seven years, Daisy still struggled with the guilt she carried, feeling like her perceived abandonment had led to her daughter's death. It took a lot for her to speak out. Still unaware of his location, she feared that Josh would come for her. Those fears were thought to have been realized when, while Josh was still on the lam, Daisy was sitting in her living room when suddenly there was a crack of the window and a blast through the house. A bullet had come through the window, striking her fridge. Calling 911, she screamed, He found me! When officers arrived, they discovered the shooter was a drunken 20-year-old in the trailer park firing his gun at random for amusement, and a stray bullet of his happened to have gone through Daisy's home. Which, what are the odds of that? I know. You're already terrified that someone's coming for you and you just so happen to get a bullet through your house. How scared she must have been. With so much coverage, hundreds of tips started coming in. It seemed everyone in Alaska had experienced a sighting of Josh. Receiving calls reporting his location, the responding officers always seemed to be just a step behind. At one point, a friend called in to report Josh had been at an apartment. But when they got there, officers found newspaper clippings about Mindy and the manhunt, but Josh had already fled. Unlike in Della's case, the testing of the physical evidence was not tossed aside until the trial. DNA testing from the steering wheel contained evidence of both Mindy and Josh. The cigarettes weren't connected to Mindy, but they weren't Josh's either. The substance on the back seat floorboard was blood, and it was Mindy's. With proof of Mindy having been bleeding in the car, concerns were only heightened. Unbeknownst to investigators, Josh was continuing to make calls to Christina. Still obstinate or a victim of her childlike innocence, she didn't report the calls. Two weeks after having turned in Josh's backpack, Christina was leaving her apartment only to find Josh standing on her front steps. He was sick of the runaround Christina was giving him. Sure, she answered his calls, but she wasn't meeting up with him, and he really wanted his backpack and a ride. Finding her friend at the door, agitated, discombobulated, and very serious, it finally hit Christina. He was a dangerous man, and she was in trouble. Pretending to have forgotten her keys inside, she asked him to wait just a moment as she went and grabbed them. Running into her home, she called the SWAT commander to tell them the man the entire state was so desperate to find was mere feet away from her. Oh, that sounds so scary. Like trying to sound cool, uh -huh. go inside, lock the door and call someone knowing he's going to figure it out any moment. Yeah. And like you don't want him to get away because you know he's dangerous, you want but you arrested. also want him to go away. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a horrible position. Yeah. But I think part of her really didn't want to believe it, you know? Yeah. I'm. Yeah. It, I definitely felt there was a lot of denial there of like, no, my friend wouldn't do and that. And if he wasn't treating her like that, mm -hmm. maybe she thought it was a mistake. Yep. Absolutely. Returning to an impatiently waiting Josh, she could tell her walking away had done nothing but exacerbated his paranoia. Apologetically, she admitted she couldn't give him a ride. Not helping his fears, Christina told him to stay where he was. The friends didn't need to exchange words. He knew what she had done. Calling her a rat before running away, Josh was heading for a wooded area behind the complex. 
Hoping to help her friend by ending the manhunt for him, Christina got in her car and gave chase, keeping the SWAT team on the phone, giving them directions of where he was going. Wow. She really went from one end Yeah, of the 180 on the that. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, oh, I get it. Okay. Through the woods, fields, and more apartments, Josh was in no way ready to end the chase. This was around 8 a.m. As Josh was running, a young man named Edward was walking, home from his shift at a nearby McDonald's. Exhausted from a long night at work, he went into his apartment and crashed on his bed. Just as he started to doze off, there was a strange knock at his window. Curious, he carried his tired body out to the front door. Before he could open it, a voice from the kitchen next to him told him to stop. Edward could see out the window that his building was surrounded with police. Tired and confused as to why someone, who he assumed was a friend of his sister's who also lived in the apartment, was telling him to not open the door, Edward continued and opened it anyway. On the other side, he was shocked to find a SWAT team pointing assault rifles directly at him. Before he could blink, he was pulled outside and handcuffed. Within minutes, he had gone from nearly asleep to living in a nightmare. I can't even imagine what was going through his head, opening the door to that. Yeah, your brain couldn't even process I it. I picture that enough. red point like on his chest. Yeah, yeah, the laser. And he's like, am I asleep right now? Yeah. Like, what is happening? Edward didn't know it, but he was in a much safer situation than his sister, who he had last seen sitting on the couch, also looking confused when the man in the kitchen spoke. The man wasn't a stranger to Edward's sister Elizabeth, but they weren't what you would call friends. Their paths had crossed via mutual acquaintances, and through that, Joshua Wade, the man standing in the kitchen, had learned where she lived. So when he ran through the woods and ended up at her apartment complex, he saw her home as an opportunity to hide. When he arrived and knocked on the door, Elizabeth answered and Josh asked to use the phone before he pushed his way inside. Soon after, Edward made his way out from his room. Alone with a frantic man and unaware of what weapons he had or how desperate he would act, Elizabeth was now in a hostage situation. Josh could feel the walls closing in. His time as a free man was drawing nigh, and he knew it. Calling the only person he thought could help, he reached out to his defense lawyer from Della's trial. They advised that he turn himself in. Unable to be anything but defiant, Josh drank a half a bottle of wine before starting on whiskey. He attempted to call Christina. He played music and continued to drink for over an hour. He's really good at decisions. Yeah. <laughs> After receiving the distressing call, his lawyer showed up at the scene. Around an hour into the ordeal, Josh let Elizabeth leave. A half hour later, he followed. He blamed his rat friend Christina for ending the manhunt. The police praised her for the same. With the wanted man finally in custody, he was taken in for an interview. They tried to use the information they had to get him to talk, but he wasn't taking the bait. His numb, disengaged behavior had them at a loss. Hoping to get him to slip up, the police tried a new strategy. Keeping the topic to what they could actually charge him with, the use of the ATM card, detectives claimed to have spoken to Mindy about him using it and that Josh did not have permission to do so. A knowing smile grew across his face and it gave the detectives a sickening feeling because they knew why. It was a smirk that told them, I know you couldn't have possibly spoken to her. When Josh requested his lawyer, the talks were over. God, the anger I would have with while well, he just smiles at you, knowing yeah. he did it, he yeah. killed her, yeah, and that you're going to have 
an uphill battle proving it. Yeah, the Ugh. detectives, there was, um, there's a show on Oxygen about this. And um, the detectives were like, we knew right then from how he was acting and how he said that, we knew. Charges were originally on the state level, but seeing as he stole money from federally protected banks, Josh would be facing much more serious charges. This also meant that if Mindy were to be found murdered, Josh could very well be facing the death penalty. Now that Josh had been found, investigators turned their focus to their other missing person, Mindy. It was soon going to be bitterly cold, and the frozen earth would make it all but impossible to conduct searches or to dig if necessary. On September 13th, 40 days after Mindy went missing, those fears were no longer. In Wasilla, about an hour's drive from Anchorage, a utility worker had called in the discovery of a body in an underdeveloped neighborhood. Taking a game trail through a wooded area, police found a woman's body, face up, near a grove of trees. Her arms were by her side as one leg was bent backwards, the other straight. On top of the body, a pile of garbage and a bathrobe that had looked as though someone had attempted to burn them with the aid of an accelerant. Luckily, rain had come through and stopped it. Officers couldn't determine right away if the body was Mindy's as there had been too much decomposition, which was the same reason they couldn't determine at autopsy if she had been raped. The autopsy documented the body was wearing one shoe, the other was recovered at the scene, and a necklace. Also at the scene, the cause of death, the bullet of a 45 caliber gun. As detectives waited for confirmation via dental records, Detective Pam Pernown called Kathy, asking her if she had any photos of Mindy wearing a necklace that matched the description of the one found on the body. She did, and they matched exactly. Oh, that's so bittersweet. It's like now you found this person, but yeah. you found her in this horrific mm -hmm. way. Not the outcome you want. It's hard where it's like, well, at least you have answers, but it's certainly not what you wanted mm -hmm. it to be. Even if in the back of your mind you knew mm -hmm. that was going to happen. I just feel so sad for that. And having to, you know when they ask that question, oh, yeah. the, the person on the other line knows what's, mm -hmm. what, what they're going to use it for. Exactly. So sad. Tinkerbell, one of the dogs who had provided a trail in the initial investigations, was brought to the location of the body. Being provided a sample of Josh's smell, the dog hit on something. Tinkerbell walked from the starting point where the body had been found back through the wooded area to where the car would have been parked. When given a sample of Mindy's scent, the dog left the car and went on the exact same path back. But when she got to the tree Mindy had been laying in front of, she sat, meaning it was the end of the trail. The body found was that of Mindy Schloss. Her dear friend Jerry, who was already heartbroken that her friend was missing, was devastated when she got the news. As a nurse, her education tortured her, painting the unwanted picture of what her friend's decomposing body would look like in the elements. Her thoughts couldn't stop imagining what Mindy was thinking or feeling as she lay in the back of her own car for an hour, bound and gagged, as Josh drove her further and further away from her home and help. With Mindy's body, there was hope murder charges would finally be brought to Josh. Interviewing the roommates once again, a story was recounted in which Josh and friends were hanging out and happened to see Mindy pull into her garage. Josh then made the comment, I'd like to spread those cheeks. Surprised by his remark, the friends laughed before pointing out how old she was, you know, because she was in her 40s. Oh, that's just so gross. What was... Ew. As the prosecution began building its case, they looked to Lisa, the ex-girlfriend and ex-girlfriend's mother, she didn't want to testify. 
Her concerns weren't based so much on wanting to protect Josh or for fear of her safety, but she knew if she were to be cross-examined, her personal life and reputation would be on full display and most likely destroyed. So to protect herself, she and Josh were wed while he was in prison in January of 2008. Honey, it's never that bad. Let him talk shit. I think that's a good point, though, of just how brutal being on the stand is. Yeah, Mm -hmm. to where it's like how many people have not gone to trial or have been uh, acquitted of something that a witness could have testified, but out of fear for what that does. Well, look at the recent trial of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I refuse to look at that. There are two major players who are not taking the stand, and I think that's why. Yeah. You think Elon Musk is going to get on there? Or Tusk. Just <laughs> Elon Musk is going to get on the stand and let everyone know all the shady shit that went down. Right. It's a mess. Technically, the couple wasn't wed in prison. Due to the limit of visitors Josh was allowed, the entire wedding party couldn't be inside at the same time. To get around this issue, Josh placed a phone call to where the party had relocated. All together and over speakerphone, they were wed. No! Hoping their potential star witness wouldn't be protected by spousal privilege, the state filed documents to invalidate the marriage, as Alaska law states a marriage can only be completed with both parties in the same location. Good for them. Lisa and Josh's marriage only lasted eight months as a judge ruled their 10-minute-long jailhouse phone call wedding void. Thank goodness. Lisa was no longer protected, and Josh just lost a huge battle in his fight for freedom. Wow. I'm shocked by all of that. Yeah. (laughs) From her actually marrying him to it being over the phone. Yeah. Wow. While awaiting trial, inmates in Alaska are often sent south to Washington's Federal Detention Center at SeaTac, which is where Josh ended up. Not wanting to be far from her man, Lisa followed. Detectives were getting desperate to have Lisa flip, so they too went to Seattle. They spoke with Lisa for a bit, but she remained uninterested in helping or talking. Before they left, detectives begged, what if this was your child? As a mother, that hit Lisa hard, and to the detective's surprise, she called them later that day. She had changed her mind. She was willing to cooperate. When they finally got back to her, they learned more than expected about what transpired between Josh and Mindy. During one of their jailhouse visits in a non-recorded room, of course, Lisa claimed Josh confessed to everything. According to Lisa, this was Josh's explanation of what happened. It was August 3rd, and his house was hosting the annoying late-night party the neighbors had mentioned to the police at the start of the investigation. The next day, Josh went to his construction job, but was sent home due to an attitude problem. With no money and no job, Josh looked to burgle a house. Coveting what he saw every day, Josh only had to look out his own window to find his next target, Mindy's house. Claiming to Lisa he didn't know Mindy was home at the time, he broke in. To his shock, she was asleep in her bed. He then forced her into the bathroom, where he had her lay on the floor before he used a piece of clothing to bind her. As the neighbors looked at each other, it was clear Mindy recognized Josh, and the last thing he was interested in was going back to jail. He had to change his plan. Leaving Mindy in the bathroom, he went home to get zip ties, a rag, a roll of painter's tape, gloves, and his gun. Returning to Mindy, he replaced the clothing restraint on her wrists and legs with zip ties. 
Going through her things, he came across her ATM card and demanded her PIN number, which he then wrote on the small piece of paper that would later be found at the house, before putting the rag in her mouth and covering it with the painter's tape. He took her to the garage, where he sat in the driver's seat after forcing Mindy into the back. Wearing only her clogs and bathrobe, the same that would be found singed on top of her body, Mindy was covered with a blanket as her Acura made the hour drive to Wasilla. Getting to the cul-de-sac of the partially built neighborhood outside the wooded area, Josh parked the car. Cutting the ties on her legs so she could walk, Josh had Mindy exit the vehicle, leaving the ties on her wrists and the gag in her mouth. Getting far enough off the trail and stopping at a tree, Josh asked Mindy to kneel down so he could cut the zip ties from her wrists. As soon as her knees touched the ground, he shot her in the back of the head. In a panic as to how to dispose of her, he tried to burn the body, piling the robe and some trash on her. It didn't work, and he gave up, driving her car back to the garage. Getting inside her house, he tidied up a bit, sweeping, vacuuming, making the bed, before stealing the watch that would later be found in his closet. The next afternoon, he drove her car to the airport, leaving it at the food preparation building parking lot before using her ATM card. The ATM records, surveillance, and eyewitnesses, like the neighbor who claimed to have seen her pull into the garage, all lined up to what Lisa said Josh admitted to. As the prosecution worked to build a murder case against Josh, they were able to charge him with gun possession as a felon. This was after the photos from the phone Christina turned in showed a hand holding a Glock. A sticker on the window in the photo matched perfectly to one in Josh's room. The defense got a win when it was decided the coverage of Josh's connection to Mindy and the manhunt wouldn't allow for a fair trial in Anchorage. The trial was then moved, fittingly, to Fairbanks. On April 17, 2008, the U.S. Attorney's Office filed charges against Josh Wade for the murder of Mindy Schloss. With allegations of carjacking, a use of a gun, and torture, the death penalty was now an option. Not missing a single hearing was Daisy, Della's mother who had received a call from Robert, Mindy's partner, asking her to attend court with him. Before going to trial, the defense fought to keep the search dog's result out of evidence. There had been recent allegations and even lawsuits resulting from inaccurate dog search trails. On February 17, 2010, nearly two and a half years after Mindy was taken and murdered, the concern about the dog's testimony was moot, as Joshua Wade pled guilty to federal and state charges related to Mindy's murder. Part of his agreement, which would remove the option of the death penalty, was that he would plead guilty to something else. Finally deciding to do right and to save his own hide, Josh admitted to having killed Della Brown Aww. a decade after he left her mutilated body in a shed. I'm very glad he did that. Yeah. I mean, we all knew for it. the family's sake, for the fam and the fact that Daisy was there. Mm -hmm. and, oh wow! Josh Wade was sentenced to a 66-year minimum, 99-year sentence, but that was at the state level. Meaning, if Josh was to be paroled at the 66-year mark, he would serve out the remainder of his life in a federal prison. Getting in front of a federal judge, Josh erupted after being called a coward for killing defenseless, innocent women. More concerned about being seen as weak than a murderer, Josh shouted, What about the men? Josh was given a life sentence and dragged away before he could incriminate himself any further. Oh, the judge pointed out that those in the courtroom were probably witnessing the last thing Mindy and Della saw, Josh exploding in anger. As part of his confession to killing Della, Josh gave his account as to what took place. 
After he and his buddies had found her lying in the street, he went back to her with the intention of picking her pockets. Having warrants for drugs, he went into the shed when a cop car came down the street. When he attempted to open the shed door, he hit Della in the head. Making his way inside, Josh found a couple having sex, a mystery man with Della. Angered by the interruption, they freaked out at Josh. In response, he kicked Della in the face. The man got up and tried to wrestle Josh, and when he couldn't win, the man started to leave. Unsatisfied, Josh reached for him, only grabbing his shirt. When it ripped, it left behind the mysterious piece of material detectives had found in the shed. Wow. So, wait, help me out. He brought her to the shed and left no, her? No, so he returned to that same area because they, you know, they had found her in the street and then they pulled her to the side. Right. So he was going to go back. But uh, right. So she woke up and. And ended up with this person in the I shed. See, I according see. to Josh. Yeah. He's <laughs> real easy to believe. Yeah. Now with her partner gone, Della was left alone and was screaming, refusing to quiet down when Josh demanded her to, and scared to encounter the man or cops, Josh beat Della to death with a rock. But in 2014, in yet another retelling, his story changed again. This time, the man hadn't gotten away. He ended up being another victim of Josh's. Prison was not easy for Josh. Early on in his sentence, letters he was sending out were intercepted. In them, he was seeking help and providing the snitches in his case with the stitches he felt they deserved. When he received a book about jail escapes, his cell was checked. A notebook was found with more of Josh's sexualized drawings and writings. There was even a story of murder that read not unlike Mindy's death, but from her point of view. Josh's anger wasn't just towards those he perceived as traitors. His constant threats and behaviors towards fellow inmates landed him in solitary confinement. All of this had him desperate to get placed in a federal prison, specifically in Indiana. Hoping to close more cases, the feds agreed to a deal, and Josh began his confessions. First, he had more to say about Mindy. He shared that when he was in the process of robbing-slash-kidnapping her, he demanded she call a friend so he could hold the friend hostage, sending Mindy to the bank to empty her account. To his surprise, she refused to put her friend in danger and wouldn't make the call. He claimed he really respected her for that. Mm, This guy. Then, as they made the drive to Wasilla and she realized this was probably going to end with him taking her life, she began to talk to him forgiving him for the choices he was going to make. It was a moment that continued to bother him, or so he claimed. As heart-wrenching as his tale was, detectives didn't believe a word of it. They still believed Josh's intentions had been to rape and murder Mindy. How hard could it have been to watch the house for a few hours to make sure it was empty before breaking in? Additionally, it was believed she had been gagged through the entirety of the ordeal. How was it she was able to speak let alone forgive you. As for the additional murders, the first Josh confessed to was 38-year-old John Michael Martin. John Martin was unemployed in 1994, struggling to manage his schizophrenia. John was loving and helpful to anyone who needed it. He loved the outdoors, hiking, camping, fishing. Spending time with friends and family brought him so much joy. He abhorred violence, which made his shooting death all the more devastating to those who loved him. On May 11, 1994, John had dinner in a restaurant and started walking home when he was shot in the head on a biking trail. Josh gave an account of his father withholding food as a form of punishment, which was corroborated by his sister. 
That night, it was Josh's hunger that drove him to the street, looking for something to eat. According to Josh, John offered to buy him a meal somewhere, but Josh was creeped out and thought he was going to kidnap him or worse, so he shot him. He's so full of shit, this guy. The confessions kept coming. On November 29, 1999, a maintenance worker at the Fairview Budget Motel found a man strangled and beaten in one of the rooms. The body was that of 30-year-old Henry Ongtausrak. Processing the body, it was found he had suffered tremendous internal injuries, causing his death. It was also found he had been dead two days before being discovered. Henry loved the outdoors and was known for his party trick of finishing a Rubik's Cube very quickly. Then there was the story of the man who had been in the shed with Della. When Josh went into the shed and the lovers got into a fight, pushing Della, she fell and hit her head. Josh thought she had died, so in this version of the story, he turned his aggression towards the man. He knocked him unconscious, put him in his car's trunk, and drove to Wasilla, not far from where Mindy had been shot. As he made the drive, the man in the trunk woke up and started to make a ruckus. Pulling over in the same unfinished cul-de-sac, Josh opened the trunk, pulled the man out, and stomped on his head. Getting to the same wooded area as he had taken Mindy, Josh took off the man's clothes, laid him down on the ground, and shot him twice in the head with a shotgun, saying he, quote, took everything from the shoulders up. Hoping they were making a legitimate deal, investigators went to the area Josh had told them this had all occurred. The dogs were back, search teams spread out, and digging commenced. But being so many years later, there was no proof as to if what anything Josh had said had happened or not. While the other confessions closed cases for investigators and gave Josh his wish of being transferred, they left much to be desired by the families and friends of whom he was confessing to having killed. As part of his deal, there would be no additional charges against Josh regarding the three additional murders. Families felt re-victimized and powerless as they knew not even one more year could be added to Josh's life sentence to represent their child, brother, or friend who had been murdered. Those who had been affected and victimized by Josh spoke to him and the court. Mindy's friends talked about their loss, how their kind, loving friend, who not only had a degree from University of Alaska Anchorage, but a master's in public health from Johns Hopkins, an advanced nurse practitioner degree in adult nursing and a degree in psychiatrics, had dedicated her life to learning how and then doing her best to help all the people she could. Della's family spoke. Her siblings knew that their family was broken in so many ways because of Josh's actions. Daisy sharing how the loss of her daughter, relocation of her family, and watching a killer walk free and having to endure yet another trial involving Joshua Wade killing a woman and all of the accompanying depression, grief, guilt, had her attempting to take her life with pills and alcohol. Luckily, she survived the attempt. Even Josh took a turn to speak. No outbursts like with the last judge. This time he was calm. One could even say respectful as he refused to say the names of the women out of respect to the family. They didn't need to hear his mouth say their names. He even expressed gratitude for getting caught. There had been many second chances he hadn't taken advantage of. Now he would have nothing better to do than to make the most of his life. Josh took the opportunity to share that for two years, he had been raped and molested while at a daycare as a child. While living with his mother before making the move to Alaska, he claimed a group of boys at his daycare assaulted him regularly. 
which would explain his extreme behaviors, which forced his mother to send him to his drug-dealing father in Alaska. With that combination, Josh never had a place to process or talk about his feelings. Allowing them to fester, he became, quote, the product of one who decided not to overcome the past and succumb to the fate that I created for myself. As for the accusations of raping Della and that possibly being the motive for going to Mindy's in the first place, he adamantly denied it, saying he would never do to someone else what had been done to him. Contrary to the story of necrophilia he had told Dwayne back in 2000. Yeah, I have a hard time buying that. You mentioned Mindy's autopsy was inconclusive if she had been sexually Yes, because assaulted. of the um, decomp. Yeah. I have a really hard time believing that that wasn't his initial motivation. I think he probably did something. Yeah, and it's a great point that was made of how hard is it to watch the house. Exactly. You know, you the detectives right were there. like, wait, you just wanted to go burgle an empty house, but you couldn't wait an hour to make sure no one was home or yeah, watch he, her house for a couple of days to see when she left for work or something. He really is contradicting himself at every angle. Yeah. And I don't know how well that, you know, how tight that neighborhood was. But if you have someone who leaves town every other week, I feel like you would kind of know or you you'd kind of like have a vibe. You'd be like, oh, there's that person that comes over with keys. I, I, my apartment building, I know people's like the, general schedule yeah. of this person goes to work at this time yeah without even watching just yeah. by coexisting Running into them. exactly yeah. so yeah it's hard to believe literally anything that comes out of this guy's mouth i don't i don't necessarily think he's lying about his past there's a reason he's so right. angry and violent and and raped someone like right. he probably did have abuse but yeah i it's hard to take anything he says yeah the narcissism because it always becomes about him yeah i wouldn't do to that person what someone did to me right you know but it's like well earlier when you didn't think anyone was listening you're bragging about and his friends heard him say i would sp spread her cheeks yeah, or whatever exactly like, why do you think he went over there yeah. for most people involved in the case they didn't think josh had killed more than the two women they were aware of and he was just making those stories up to get transferred while that was very possible it couldn't be denied that he did have information about the murders of John and Henry that hadn't been released to the public. Yeah, he did it. Come on. As far as his capability, you couldn't deny the cruelty and depravity he displayed in the killings of Mindy and Della. So maybe he was capable of being a serial killer. Unlike his fellow Alaskan murderers like Israel Keyes or Robert Hansen, the latter we covered in the episode Before You Sits a Monster, Josh didn't display discipline, modus operandi, patience, or premeditation. His demons exposed themselves in moments of opportunity and rage. And there are a lot of serial killers, well, not a lot, but there are serial killers who are like that, mm -hmm. where they don't have a one type of victim or it is opportunity-based. Yeah. So it's not necessarily explaining it away. Yeah, it's like the difference is those people were killing to kill and his tend to be yeah just that moment or violent outburst yeah i'm here to rob your house and yeah. rape you or i'm here to pick but your pockets there becomes a pattern at one point exactly. that he knows his uh intent of burglary is going to mm -hmm. turn into something else yeah or he's crossed that line so it's like oh it might go there yeah. i don't know maybe and he, and he says oh i don't want to get caught so now i have to murder them mm -hmm. Factual confessions or not, Josh was moved out of Alaska, but his bad behaviors followed him to the maximum security prison he was placed at in Indiana. He remained in the hole because of his crimes, the manhunt that ensued, and his continued violence. 
When making calls, he would scream on the phone. There was an incident where he choked a fellow inmate. On another occasion, a petite fetal alcohol-affected indigenous man was invited by Josh into his cell. Josh then forced the man to perform oral sex on him. When the man refused at first, Josh threatened to kill him. Upon completion, the threats continued, this time directed at the man's wife and children if he told anyone about what happened. The man didn't fall for his intimidation and reported the incident. Another that was contrary to Josh's supposed I would never sexually assault anyone claims. And yet again, an indigenous person. Exactly. He's got got a pattern. Mm -hmm. Josh's sister, Mandy, spoke to the author as well. Looking back at her life with her brother, she saw his anger and violent tendencies. They both went through trauma and abuse with their parents and others, making for a tumultuous childhood. She also shared a story about Josh from when they were teens, and he claimed to have killed a convenience store clerk. She thought it was just talk back then, but after his murderous tendencies came to light, she wasn't as sure that he had been kidding. She isn't the only one that feels he killed others. His own father, Bubba, thinks more women died at his son's hands. As different as Mindy and Della looked, they, along with ex-wife Lisa, shared similarities of dark hair. This could have been a coincidence, but they did resemble Josh's half-Hispanic mother. Hearing his son talk about the murders, there was a notable difference in the rage he unleashed on the women, especially Della, the only indigenous woman he took responsibility for, compared to the men. Josh's actions were appalling, but not completely shocking to Bubba. The coldness he felt inside of him could have, he worried, been passed on genetically. The convenience store clerk wasn't on Bubba's radar, but he did have some thoughts surrounding a friend of Josh's who died by suicide when they were teens. He couldn't help but wonder if Josh had actually been involved. That's a horrible thing to think back on. Yeah, or to think your child would be capable. And I think that really says something about the dad that he's like, my heart is so cold. I worry that my son got that from me. Mm, like he's a detached, mm-hmm. possibly a personality disorder. Yeah. Mm. Joshua Wade is serving out his life sentence at a federal penitentiary in Indiana. We will probably never know the true number of victims or how many murders he was actually responsible for. Someone who didn't think Josh's confessions were anything more than talk was Assistant District Attorney General John Novak. He didn't care about Josh's transfer as long as he was kept in a cage. He has stated that anyone who thinks Josh is a serial killer has been reading too many books. But this is also the man who, when asked if investigations would focus on those unsolved murders and possibly bringing charges to Josh if applicable, he said, quote, in my personal evaluation, how many life sentences are you going to give a guy? Oh, God, that's not the point, sir. I I think it's too messy for him. He doesn't want to deal with it. I think Joshua Wade is one of the inherently evil people that needs to be locked up for the rest of his life. And if, did he kill others? Maybe, but it doesn't really matter to me. That's such bullshit. You know, like, I get what he's saying. He can't be in prison longer, but that is not the point when you're solving a case sometimes. And when you're working with finances and it's like the prosecution's budget is X number of dollars, And to take this guy to trial for these three other cases is going to be X number of dollars, but he's already put away for life. Why bother? And with every case, he gets more appeal options. Like, it is very messy. So I get that. But it's also like, can't you do something at least for these families? Like, just on paper, just say, 
one year for this person, one year for this person. Yeah, that's all you have to do is get a confession and determine the time. Yeah. I, I Maybe he genuinely doesn't think he did, the, did it. I don't know. Well, but you really hear the true feeling of an attorney general like Which or district sucks. attorney general. Yeah, where you're just like, you know, what does it matter to me? Like, we know it doesn't matter to you. We're well it aware matters, it doesn't, doesn't matter to you. People. It's not paperwork for these people. Put other it's people not... first for once. Jeez. The ripple effect of Joshua Wade's actions spread so much further than the losses of Della, Mindy, John, and Henry. Their friends and loved ones miss them. They carry the grief and emotions with them daily. They miss how Della loved cooking with her family or showing off all of Alaska's beauty. They miss her advice to be yourself. They miss her devotion, passion, and support. From the murder victims to their families, the pain trickled even to the juries. Those alternates from the Della Brown trial were so bothered by the process and outcome, seven of them actually attended PTSD meetings. Wow, really? Yeah. This wasn't pain just from their trial, but what happened because of it. Many of them had felt Josh was guilty, but the lack of evidence, poor police work, and failure on behalf of the prosecution had them feeling the reasonable doubt was too much. But because they had acquitted him, they felt guilty for allowing a monster to remain free, which cost Mindy her life. That would be really hard, I think. Yeah. When you have a gut feeling about him and legally yeah. you can't convict him. You'd have to just happen. You would have to just tell be like that was that's on the prosecution. That's I, on I the cops. That is not I would feel that. I would have to get counseling for absolutely, that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've talked about that before that it's not offered. And we've had friends that have mm-hmm. been on jury duty that was like really graphic and horrible stuff. And the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. I can't imagine having we to look have at we that. have a dear friend who's not like uh the most sensitive person you know stuff doesn't bother him That's that true, often yeah. and he, because it was a child case child abuse he like he still has that with him just hearing the stories from him yeah i think about it often yeah and you didn't have to see the photos again yeah, and then they just send you on your way bye thanks for your time mindy's ashes were spread in the mediterranean sea per her wishes The family requested that instead of flowers, donations be made to the Polycystic Kidney Disease Foundation in Kansas City under Mindy Schloss. She had chosen that charity as she herself suffered from cysts related to the disease. Just a month before she was killed, Mindy had been in Seattle for surgery to alleviate her pain. If you would like to make a donation, please visit pkdcure.org slash give. All families affected by Josh's choices still deal with the ramifications. Della's family couldn't help but notice the discrepancies between Mindy and Della's cases. It wasn't lost on most people how much coverage Mindy's case got, even leading to a costly manhunt, including billboards. When Della, an indigenous woman who was dealing with substance addiction, was found brutally murdered, many felt police didn't take her murder seriously or try hard enough to decipher evidence from irrelevant items in the shed which led to frustration with the prosecution. Not testing evidence until the trial had begun, not believing in the case, leaving it to newbies, not working harder to get evidence permitted in the courts, so on and so forth. Leaving Della's family feeling the state not only did a disservice to Della and them, but they, in a way, were responsible for the murder of Mindy. Perhaps if the media had covered Della's case and more people had been aware of the horrendous acts Josh had committed, there would have been more outrage forcing the state to try harder. 
As Native Alaskans had all seen so many times, it took the harming of a perceived successful white woman to get the attention and demand for a resolution in Della's case. If you'd like to make a donation in honor of Della Brown, this is a nonprofit I have found, not one that was asked by anyone related to the case. You can visit nativepeoplesaction.org slash donate. Josh is going to die in jail after taking at least two lives, if not five or even ten. We will probably never be able to understand why. Was it anger towards his mother and her inability, as he saw it, to keep him safe from his father, his rapists, or even herself? Was it self-hatred for internalizing the sexual assaults his child-aged brain couldn't process? Were the murders merely crimes of opportunity? Perhaps it was bad luck, like with the supposed convenience store worker and even Mindy, just robberies gone wrong. Josh had taken $1,000 from Mindy's account, using the money for rap CDs and bandanas. And maybe that was the unwinnable battle all along. Josh would never be able to see more value than that in a human life, especially if it was one of an indigenous woman. What a monster. I These kinds of cases are so hard where it's just a lifelong commitment to crime mm-hmm. and disregarding human life and just being an overall piece of shit. Yeah. I can't understand how Native people feel, but I can mm. understand why that would be so infuriating to see your daughter's life disregarded and then a white woman killed by the same person solved so much money put into it so much effort put into it it just really puts it in perspective the issues that native women in particular have yeah oh this guy yeah and part of me had even crossed my mind like oh well he's just in prison in indiana maybe i'll write him and i'm like no i i don't want to hear it wouldn't be anything but bullshit he deserves to be forgotten about forever exactly yeah there are some people where it's like this is worth uh, exploring so we can understand so we can protect people or whatever and it's like no this dude was racist sexist violent it is I mean there is part of me that wants to know how did his brain develop that way is there mm. really sex abuse in his childhood was he always violent was his father more than detached was his father violent? you know there are questions I'm interested for looking at the greater purpose mm-hmm. looking understanding murders in general right but him I don't fucking care. Yeah. You know, like freaking every case we cover, yeah. red flags his entire life that yep. you feel like it should have been solved. Yeah. And then just <sighs> the other idiots he hung around with, putting off telling the cops, and you know if your friend is seriously dangerous. Like, yeah. nip that shit in the bud. Yeah. I know it's hard. He's your bud, but come on. Well, and then they tried to, and then the and prosecution- then they were disregarded. It's just, yeah. yeah, it's just everything- uh, was against them That's a really and, good and point. they were against themselves they were in their own way prosecution was in their own way it's really interesting in the book I didn't go into it and uh, that's called ice and bone they have there's a chapter where the prosecutor one of the one of the women that took it over took the case over you know once the original prosecutor had left you know all these years later looking back in hindsight and she's like yeah we were unprepared and when the author was like 
do you have anything to say about the people who were really distraught about you laughing through the case? And she's like, she had no idea. She's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, you guys were very giggly. And, you know, besides Josh's outburst, there's, you know, jurors. glad he addressed it. Yeah, it's really interesting because you can, even though you're reading it, it really plays, you can you can hear her tone of like, she's embarrassed. She's Did she apologize? Oh, yeah. She was like, we were nervous and we have gallows humor and we yeah. didn't know what we were doing. It's important to realize that the people watching don't have gallows here yeah. humor. You can, you totally understand. I mean, I've been in that position where I've been with students. You're in like really serious situations. You have to make some sort of joke that out of that room would be really not good. So I, I, I understand that, but it's also like you have to recognize where you are and you, what your and position when you is. you take a position like that, you have to be aware of that. And stuff. literally lives are on the line, not just the life of the person you're going after, because that could be a wrongful conviction. You know, you're taking someone's life, but protecting people. Yeah. If this person is so dangerous, if you're like this person, like beat someone to death with a rock, he's very dangerous. Well, if he's that dangerous, then work your ass off. To put him away. Yeah, imagine. So that someone else doesn't die. A person he didn't know, who'd never spoken to him before. Imagine what someone in his life who he knows and he gets mad at. Yeah. He's so dangerous. Yeah. That is a really big lesson to learn for her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This one was was, rough. It's an interesting read. Ice and Bone is is an interesting read. And yeah, there's just a lot of, you know, there's a lot of articles, obviously, about this case and... Um, it is just so frustrating, as always, of just the mishandling of everything, the unfairness because of a white woman compared to indigenous and just him being awful. And and so many people, that's the stuff, too, with like not like toxic masculinity. It's not like that. But, you know, when it's it's not all guys, it's not all guys. But if you've got a guy friend who you know is going to go back to a woman you, you found passed out in a road. Yep. You need to say something. Yes. It's your responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get what you mean. You have and, all these guys are like, oh, yeah, we know he's going to go down and pick her pockets and probably rape her and see if there's drugs and like whatever else. And they're like, oh, that's just how it is. And I will say it is horrible the difference that these women were treated in their yeah. investigation. But at least... It was solved because there are thousands of indigenous women that we will never know where they are or what happened to them and who did it. It's by no means fair. Right. But at least there's one. Yeah. Another depressing murder in the rain. Hey, Josh, let's get to some bloopers, okay? How can we ever trust thee again? Yeah, thee. We're rolling. Limp Biscuit style. Script? Yeah, you know what? If you want to put it at the top of the script, that'd be cool. Okay, Actually, yeah. you could just put that F up your butt. So oh, it's, that's it's, I'm nice. I'm sorry, it's not just F. It's a big, it's a longer number. It's uh, F, U. What Kimberly needs to understand is I will do whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> and so we acted like it was a food truck. And we, before we knew what food trucks were. Right. And we would like chop up chives and shit it was so fun oh that's cute i'd still play that <laughs> that's called cooking dinner <laughs> you little chive chopper in early 2000 a ouija planchette <laughs> oh. <laughs> i'm gonna name my next cat planchette oh i like that cat planchette i she said her next cat was gonna be named planchette and i said cat planchette 
Kate Blanchett. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's funny. Good. That, is, that is funny. Good job. Thank you. Clever. Well, <sighs> clever girl. Friend, by the time Star Witnesses. <laughs> I feel like you're going fast a little bit. Still. Oh, okay. That, I'm sorry. Fast? I, I think it it's all right. Okay. Yeah, okay. I can. Oh, I'll, I'll right. bring it down a notch. <laughs> Can't you play with it in one of your finagled computer systems? Can't you slow <laughs> To make that. And oh. so I just have like a hole, so sometimes my tongue will get stuck in it, so it makes a little vacuum pop. Oh. And it'll go. <laughs> Sexy. Uh-huh. Pretty cool. Oh, boy. Breakfast. Gross. <laughs> what are you, eating Costco hot dogs for breakfast? No, a Starbucks Sandy that you got me so kindly because you're a sweet friend. <laughs> I spit in it. Would also bring... I had it. April stools. <laughs> yeah, coffee. Ooh. And yogurt. No, water. Water. Who? Where'd you get yogurt? What? I had yogurt. What? <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? You need to leave to go poop? Is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> what? I'm just making conversation. Man. Oh, but you said you said the poops and we said the coffee because we're talking about her water and she, coffee, and then you said yogurt and we didn't know where the yogurt no one came yogurt. from. <laughs> I had yogurt. <laughs> what is not understood about this? I like that he just volunteers that information. Yogurt. I had yogurt. I had yogurt. Yummy, yummy. It was in my Jamba Juice. Thank Troy. you. Oh, yeah. So did you then, didn't you? Yeah, I just, I'm sorry I didn't announce it. <laughs> was I supposed to? I did not have yogurt. I had yogurt and a sausage sandwich. Fake sausage. Okay, Emily, did you want to announce any food or <laughs> should I? <laughs> I'm good. Okay. I'm excited to listen to that one. <laughs> Yogurt. We're losing him over there. We were so confused. I'm like, what case are you listening to, Josh? I had no idea what you guys were talking about. I still don't know what you guys are talking about, but I had yogurt. I ate it. Sorry. 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 We're following you with our yogurt. You got that extra chunky yogurt. Josh does. <laughs> he talked to his doctor about it, okay? It's totally normal. <laughs> Happens to every guy. It's a side effect of being disgusting. <laughs> so then all men, huh? You done curdled yourself, huh? <laughs> his hobby of drawing hadn't subsided. His his hobby of drawing had, oh boy, hadn't subsided, hadn't subsided. Excuse me. Cute. Personally attacked. <laughs> Yogurt. Uh, I'm going to step away. Poop. He's he going to go yogurt. make his own yogurt. <laughs> Extremely soft serve. Oh. oh. Just read what's written. You've read it a hundred times. You wrote it over and over. Okay. Just trying to give the people what they want, which is the don't bloops. read the script. No, don't do it. <laughs> Please don't be so scripted with your scripted show. My God. Like this or don't. Leave if you don't. Bye. We scripted. Debit card pen. Duh. Pin. Those motherfuckers. It's dad season.
in a hostage situation. <laughs> that's right. Hostage situation. I'm going to get you a t-shirt that's like, I always, I always end it with a D. That's right. And I do. <laughs> she had changed her... Changed? Changed your mind. He had to change his plan. I made a gurgle. I'm oh so my sorry. God, what? It was in my esophagus. Wow. I thought that was outside. <laughs> no, it was like a... I thought that, that was a like rock a, it truck. It sounded like a weather event. <laughs> <laughs> Is it hailing? Oh my God, you guys are so mean. Yeah. They were able to charge him with possession of gun... Of a gun. Possession of gun. I will gurgle here and gurgle he's, there and he's gurgle gonna everywhere. Go, he's going to go gurgle. You out his butt. You gotta go poo poo. Am I turned up at least so I can talk? Uh, and gurgle. Gurgle away. Yeah. Ew. Ew. Oh, I'm <laughs> As Joshua wet. <sighs> hmm. Schloss. Which was corroborated. Oh, I hate that word. Corroborated. Which was corroborated. Corroborated. <laughs> <laughs> which was verified. Which was verified by his sister. <laughs> Which was confirmed. Please, Josh, any of these other words. <laughs> Anything but corroborated. You keep saying it right, though. I know. <laughs> I know. It's been, it's been a very long time. <laughs> you recorded part one and half of part two in March. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> it is now May today. <laughs> is today May? Yeah, May 1st. <gasps> Happy May Day, everyone. It's gonna be May. Ah, All yeah. that I do is not enough for you. And a degree in psychiatry. Nope. <laughs> psychiatry. Psychiatry. The attempt. <laughs> Jinx. Now he would have nothing better than to make the most out of his life to do. Hello. There had been many second chances he hadn't taken advantage of. Now he who. It's true. I have to finish this quote, oh, though. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. I thought you were done. Just to, just to edit that out. <laughs> An accompanying... Oh, my gosh. Accompanying... 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 I'll just skip it. <laughs> Josh is going to... Oh, my God. It's die. literally the last paragraph. Is it die in jail? No, it's Jai and Dale. <laughs> I'm going to pee my pants, okay. so let's do this. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>